If you're traveling in the north country fire Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there This is a song from the Freewheelin' Bob Dylan album and the song is titled Girl from the North Country. Here's what the opening of the play by award-winning Irish playwright Connor McPherson sounds like. He's a writer who created a play titled Girl from the North Country. Act one, actors and musicians on stage to get ready for the live broadcast. Someone sits at a piano and plays and sings, a drummer, double bass player and guitar player join in along the way, as do the cast harmonizing. They sing, sign on the window, sign on the window says lonely, sign on the door says no company allowed, sign on the street says you don't own me, sign on the porch says three's a crowd, sign on the porch says three's a crowd. The band takes the music down for a few bars while a middle-aged actor approaches the microphone. It's Dr. Walker. Tonight's story begins and ends at a guest house, he says, in Duluth, Minnesota, in the winter of 1934. Back here, some of the guests will meet along the way. Connor McPherson tells us he'd been asked if he might consider writing a play to feature Bob Dylan's songs. I didn't initially feel this was something I could do, and I had cast it out of my mind when, one day, walking along, I saw a vision of a guest house in Minnesota in the 1930s. I'd been in Minnesota twice in the years leading up to this, both times in the dead of winter. The friendliness of the people, the dry, frozen wind, the vast distance from home, these things had stayed with me. And I saw a way Mr. Dillon's songs might make sense in a play. And it strikes me that many of Mr. Dillon's songs can be sung at any time by anyone in any situation and still make sense and resonate with that particular place and person and time. When you realize this, you can no longer have any doubt you're in the presence of a truly great, unique artist. All that from the Girl from the North Country issued by Theater Communications Group. In an interview included in the theater and films of Connor McPherson, the playwright explains how he went about raising the actors in the play to another level in their performances. And the key was Bob Dylan in performance. Dylan did incredible, energized performances of Joker Man and License to Kill on the David Letterman show in 1984. It's worth looking at. A lot of the energies I took for our production of Girl were where I could find Bob Dylan being intensely passionate about something. There's footage of him doing concerts in Toronto in 1980. This was at a time when he was giving religious sermons every night, preaching to the crowd. He really means it. It's so intense. He's got six backing singers banging tambourines. I felt this is the Bob Dylan that we needed to capture. So going through the process of rehearsals was very instinctive, taking my cue from Bob Dylan's performances. You could see he was really on fire. 
I tried to bring that feeling into our rehearsals. I was messianic myself in that situation and was really driving at the cast to get into it and to go some other place. Words of Irish playwright Conor McPherson about the play he created titled Girl from the North Country with music and lyrics by Bob Dylan. A week ago, Monday, May 24th, the Music World celebrated the 80th birthday of Bob Dylan, and we had a chance to talk with Stephen Whitaker, professor in the Department of English and Theater at the University of Scranton, about the artistry of Bob Dylan. Dr. Whitaker offered a course to the public in 2020 through the Shamel Forum at the University of Scranton titled Bob Dylan from Rolling Stone to Nobel Laureate. In part two of our conversation, we'll learn more about the reasons Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2016 and about Bob Dylan, the performer. You watch Dylan's evolution as a writer, and every time he's exposed to something, a new musical idiom, he absorbs it. By the, by the time he was doing his radio show, the theme time radio hour from 2006 to 2009, he was musically as sophisticated as anybody with a with a guitar out there, certainly. Um, the joke is those are jazz chords. Well, yeah, that's you know, he was he was no longer playing things in, in G C D. They were fabulously complex musically and uh, with all kinds of influences. But also you see him just trying on virtually every idiom around him. Um, I stopped at 1975 before. Well, what happens very shortly thereafter is his, you know, that desire comes out, which is kind of like the afterthought of Blood on the Tracks, which great tunes in it, but desire has this, this tune in it called One More Cup of Coffee, and it is a gypsy tune. It's gypsy musically, and it's gypsy in terms of content. And apparently he was visiting somewhere in the, you know, in the south of France and somebody took him to a, a gypsy camp where people were singing their traditional songs. And he goes back and he writes this tune, which is, I'd love to play it and sing it for people because they wouldn't guess in a million years that it was uh, Dylan.
1963, almost 15 years earlier, he had been in England touring just as a not very well-known folkie. And somebody plays for him uh, Scarborough Fair. And he goes back to wherever he's staying and immediately writes the song Girl from the North Country. If you're traveling in the North Country fire where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there She once was a true love of mine If you go in the snowflake storm And you, you hear these two tune side by side and you say, oh, yeah, okay. But when you look at what he does, when he changes the song, what he does with the sort of easy irony of, of Scarborough Fair, you know, you do these three things which are impossible and, and then we'll be true loves again. You know, it's a sort of bitter, bitter um, accusation song disguised as a love song. And then he does Girl from the North Country, which is uh, so rich and so nuanced in its uh, emotional content. So he takes it, he appropriates it, and he, uh, I don't know, transmogrifies it into uh, an American idiom. I mean, the North Country has got to be Minnesota. And uh, the sort of picture of love becomes so much more complicated than in than in his source material. And that's, you know, again, that's what you see when you look at Shakespeare. Shakespeare will, you know, look at something like Orlando Furioso, and he'll transform it into Much Ado. And Orlando Furioso is great. It's, you know, it's this wonderful little Italian thing. But in Shakespeare's hands, it becomes eternal, immortal. And this is this is what Dylan did throughout his life. Okay, it's late 1970s, and suddenly Bob Dylan becomes Christian. And it's just like five years before he had settled things that he was this national treasure. He had done this with the album Blood on the Tracks. But then we get a series of three albums, and he typically publishes each genre that he turns to in three albums. And we get Slow Train Coming in 79, and then Through Shot of Love in 81. 
And those are the, those are the Christian albums, and those are the ones where he, instead of performing in clubs or in big shows, he starts performing in churches. And it's uh, for for a huge, maybe ninety percent of what had been his fan base. That was it. That was the horse just ran under a low limb, and there was no no riding it. But what he does there is just just like what he did uh, at Newport when he picked up the electric. He he transforms a genre. He you know he invents electric folk, which then redirects rock and roll. This is what he does in the mid-60s. Here he is around 1980 inventing this thing, which we now refer to as Christian rock. And whatever you think about that as a genre, there's a whole lot of practitioners of it, all of whom say, yeah, Dylan invented this. And he does that for three or four years, and then he moves on. And so then that allowed the sort of Christian community to, to be one more of the communities that felt that felt sort of betrayed, thinking that, oh, this is the real him, and he's finally here to stay. And it's it's so it's it's so wonderful to watch. And when you look at when you look at the the Christian stuff, you realize, oh gosh, the Old Testament, New Testament have been all over his songs from from the the very beginning. I mean, turn, 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 and Highway 61, and I dreamed I saw Saint Augustine all through the 60s. Now, they weren't reverential, usually, or watchtower. They weren't reverential, but they were clearly steeped in this sort of Judaic and Judeo-Christian lingo, worldview, way of talking, way of, way of valuing and valorizing experience. And then he becomes explicitly Christian for three years there, and then officially, you know, leaves but then 10 years later, he comes out with Oh Mercy, with things like Most of the Time and Ring Them Bells on it, which are clearly working out of that, that Christian stuff. And I have to say, the, the Christian stuff is, is really interesting to look at, again, as always, Dylan's influence on other musicians. So, so you have somebody like Bono from U2, and uh, he looks at the, the tune from A Shot of Love called Every Grain of Sand. And... Bono is. I don't think most of most people realize that he's a you know he's a devoutly religious book, and he says, yeah, every grain of sand it, it's as good as any of the psalms, and, and then you go back and look at it, and, and and you can see once again that Dylan has has got seven or eight identifiable sources for that song that he has, like a like an alchemist, reblended in the crucible of his imagination into this new tune, which is at, at once really recognizable and really traditional and at the same time really innovative and really just sort of the kind of thing that just sets your imagination on fire when you listen to it. time of my confession in the hour of my deepest need when the pool of tears beneath my feet flood every newborn seed there's a dying voice within me 
But apparently she was a performer. She wrote these things, sang them, and played the lyre. And, and, and she is the beginning, literally, of Poetry of the Lyre, the lyric poem. And if you want to say there are a couple of main channels for literature, you're always going to go to the Greeks, and you're going to look for Greek theater, you're going to look for the Greek lyric, and you're going to look for the Greek epic, which you know has become the novel in our hands. And the thing that Dylan does, he does exactly the way it's been done for sure for 2,500 years, and as well as anyone has ever done it. So, yeah, that's why he got the Nobel Prize. Are these explorations, do we say, because you use the word worldview and working things out, are these Bob Dylan, the human being, working out a way of understanding the world? Is that what the journey is? Well, that's yeah, I think you put it very well. You know, we like to pretend that we are a fixed commodity, and we say things like, true to yourself. But, you know, Plato would say, and who is that exactly? And one of the things that poets do is introduce us to ourselves. I mean, you can slide in quotes from Shakespeare, you know, or or James Joyce, or, you know, I contain multitudes. uh, We can go to the American tradition. And, And Dylan is, he's not... To to say that he's a mime isn't to say that he's ingenuine or insincere, but rather that he recognizes that one of the things that humans do is perform themselves, and that you you know if you're gonna if it's gonna be any good, you really have to buy into the performance to to explore it because what you're doing at that point is you're exploring what it what it is to be a human being, and it, you know. It, it, Think of Shakespeare. We know we know almost nothing about Shakespeare, and yet through these hundreds of characters, we know so much about Shakespeare. And and you know, and he makes the speech that we walk through. We walk through friends and strangers, and always encountering ourselves. Uh, this this thing that you can see in Leaves of Grass, you can see it in Shakespeare, you can see it in Joyce, and you can see it in Dylan. That that he is constructing things like every artist. He steals from himself. He builds out of his own personality, and he also steals from people around him, which can be pretty painful at times, I think think Joan Baez will attest. But that's what artists do. They work with the material at hand, and they construct new selves, and not just new selves for themselves, but new possible selves for anybody. So, yeah, this is is an exploration. It's very personal. But, I mean, it's so so cool, Erica, that, that... Somebody has notes from, uh, I don't know, 63 or 64, a note, Dylan saying, you know, I I just want to perform. If I can just get up and perform for the rest of my life, that's all I want to do. And, you 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 know, you sort of hear, uh, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man playing in the, in, in the back of your mind as you think, okay, that's what he's done for 60 years. He's been a song and dance man who composes the song and who composes the dance and if and if if you have a song and and he likes it he's going to take it apart and put it back together again and this this will be devil people who are trying to protect copyrights but artists don't generally speaking worry about that sort of thing i mean professional artists worry about their own copyrights being protected 
But it's perfectly, perfectly normal for artists to cannibalize each other's work. And I mean, and there's, you know, there's famous cases of Picasso and Matisse and people like this who are just quite self-consciously translating other people's paintings into their own idiom. And then it becomes a conversation in, in many cases. And if we were going to if we were going to thank Dylan for one thing for American lyric music, it's this sort of thing that he invents in the mid-60s, which is the, the, the lyric singer-songwriter. And, I mean, yeah, you go back and you can find Hoagy Carmichael sitting at a piano singing one of his tunes. And so Dylan didn't invent this from nothing. But when you look at some of these great, People we have like Paul Simon, just unbelievably talented people, or or James Taylor, or Taylor Swift. Now that these people who who record their life in songs and then record it in music, and and to to a very large extent, Dylan is the guy who invented that. He would never put it that way. I mean, the whole point of his his wonderful you can find that all online now. Most of that has been posted his his theme time radio hour archives. But um, Dylan, I'm sure, would point to, to all kinds of American folk and popular artists from the early 19th century, uh, right up to his time, who were singer-songwriters. They just, you know, they did not have the fame that electronic media made available, the widespread fame. But um, he's he's the one that showed a whole lot of people. I, I think I think. James Taylor says that somewhere that that you could just see Joni Mitchell. You could just see, oh, this this is a career. I don't have to be a songwriter or a performer. And my my beloved Texas traditions of people like Willie, who was a songwriter for the longest time, and you know he would cover his own songs just for the demo tapes to try to sell the song. And then Dylan comes along, and he, like everybody else, said, you know, I can do this. I can stand up and perform this stuff, which is just, if you were to say, what is the defining feature of the popular American landscape of popular music now? It is the singer-songwriter. And you can think of literally hundreds of people in bands who who are that thing. And and I think Dylan, you know, it's so it's so wrong of me to be grandiose about this, but Dylan certainly facilitated it. Let's let's put it that way. Oh, where have you been, my blue And where have you been? Dr. Stephen Whitaker, professor in the Department of English and Theater at the University of Scranton, focusing on classics and Irish studies, speaking with us about singer-songwriter Bob Dylan, marking Dylan's 80th birthday on May 24th, 2021, a week ago Monday. This is the second of a two-part conversation in which Dr. Whitaker has helped us understand how it is that Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2016, and also about Bob Dylan, the performer. And it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard, and it's a hard Part one of our series is posted on the WVIA website under Artscene, wvia.org, wvia.org, and part two will be up there by this evening. If you'd like more information about Dr. Whitaker, scranton.edu, scranton.edu. Dr. Stephen Whitaker, and it's spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Whitaker, 
W-H-I-T-T-A-K-E-R. He's a professor in the Department of English and Theater at the University of Scranton, speaking with us about Bob Dylan and the awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Bob Dylan in 2016. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a-bleeding. I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken.